Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Alan Thomas, the Federal Acquisition Service Commissioner. Alan, uh, thank you so much for taking the time today. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So this is your first time on uh, my show. It's great to have you here. There's so much going on at GSA. So let me start at the very beginning with the uh, GSA Schedules Program, one of my favorite things to cover. Uh, talk maybe just give me a sense of where you guys are at with the schedules program, uh, health of the schedules, revenue, customer satisfaction, things of that nature. The schedules program is overall healthy in terms of how we measure it, right? I mean, as you know, uh, we're a non-appropriated activity, right? So we're always trying to provide good value to customers and then, uh, you know, break even on that service we're providing. So by, the, uh, by those financial measures, the, the schedules program is healthy. There's always room for improvement, um, and we are certainly looking to make Uh, some improvements in the schedules program. So a couple of examples. You and many of your listeners are probably familiar with the order level materials rule or the OLM rule, which many in industry know as uh, ODCs or other direct costs. And we think that's, you know, that's uh, a rule that we've gotten uh, implemented and we're working on making modifications to uh, individual uh, contracts now. And I think you'll start to see the benefits of that in fiscal year 19. Uh, so really what that allows uh, customers to do is it cuts down on the number of open market purchases they have to make in concert with the schedules buy. So we think there's a cycle time reduction there. And for our industry partners, it really allows them to sell solutions on schedule. And that's really how industry partners want to sell, and that's how customers want to buy. You know, I think in 19, we'll probably also be looking at, particularly for product schedules, uh, minimum order quantities and trying to reduce or remove the requirement for minimum order quantities. It's something that we've heard about from our customers, and we think uh, we think that's an improvement that we'd like to make in the schedules program as well. There, let's start with OLMs, ODCs. It's been a very popular topic. I've been asked several times, what is an ODC? And I always kind of describe it as if you're buying, let's say, a computer, but you need a service to implement it, you know, someone to plug it in, if you will. I'll simplify it. But the ODC is that service. Previously, you'd have to buy two contracts, one for the computer, one for the service. Do I have that right? You do. Yeah, that's exactly right. It could work the other way, too, right? You could be you could be buying a service, and maybe you need a little bit of software to go along with that, with some of the professional services you're buying. But, yeah, you have it right. What has to go into the implementation there? Is it just modifying schedules or what? There's a contract modification, right? We're in the process of doing that with the vendor. So there's a, a SIN or special item number, right, for OLMs that, that vendors will have to get added to their contracts. Uh, then there's, there, you know, there's some training and awareness also, right? So you've got to make industry aware of it, uh, and I think many of them are. We also have to make our, our workforce aware of it and then the broader acquisition workforce aware of it, right? So this is it's new. Uh, it's different, so we want to make sure you know, we get the guidance and the training out. You know, we've done some webinars. We've got some information on our website. You know, but, again, it's the kind of thing that you, you could do it now in, in fiscal year 18. It's live, as they say. But I think we'll really start to see the impact of it in uh, in 19. And then the other piece you talked about is uh, minimum order quantities. The, again, it goes back to the idea of products where how many chairs do I have to buy? I can't buy one chair. If I break one chair, can I buy one chair or, or do I have to use my purchase card or what? We consistently hear from customers that sometimes you know minimum order quantities oftentimes will lead them to cancel orders, right? They, you know, they want one of something. They don't want to buy, say, a dozen of them. You obviously get a better price when you buy a dozen, but we're, we're working – uh, working with uh, the vendors on schedule to try and reduce or, in some cases, remove those minimum order quantities. Now, in some, you know, customers may be willing to pay a little more per unit, but if I only need one of something every year, I don't want to. I don't want to buy twelve and have eleven just sitting around all year. The other piece about the health of the schedule, you said overall healthy. Now, generally speaking, GSA 
several schedules are, are not, we'll use the term in quotes, profitable. I know that's not a word GSA or the government uses. We seek to recover our costs, right? So we're, we're a break-even enterprise. Yeah. Exactly. Meaning that, but you, you spend more than you make on, on certain schedules. Right. And is that still a big concern? I mean, from my perspective, you know, I manage the whole uh, acquisition services fund, right? And so I take a portfolio approach. Some things are doing a little better than others, right? But overall, on balance, you're, we're trying to run a run a break-even uh, enterprise. Now, look, it's good discipline to have everybody at an individual program or schedule level think about trying to run their operation as efficiently as they can, and you know, provide the right kind of value to customers. But I take an enterprise perspective there, and if we're breaking even at the enterprise, then that's that, that's a good metric. And I guess the next question is: I know 2018 is not over yet. You still have a very busy September ahead of you. But does it look good? Are you going to break even for 2018? Are you going to be a little up, a little down? So that there actually are a couple of different measures we use in terms of uh, break-even, right? So there's a sort of number we look at before we make investments back into our business, and then a number we look at after we make investments back into our business. From a perspective of taking the number before we make investments, we will absolutely uh, break even. Uh, after investments, we probably will be uh, will be a little bit short, but we're definitely on a trajectory to um, you know to be break-even at the uh, at the level where we include our investments uh, within hopefully within two years. That's kind of the goal I've set for the organization. Now, in the past, when we've looked at numbers for the schedules, it's something like $34, $35 billion in, in, in sales. Is that still where you guys are at? Have you seen an uptick recently? Yeah, so I think schedule spending is pretty steady, right, over the last several years, right? Some of the, um, you know, some of the volume has moved to, uh, to GWACs and government-wide MACs and things like that. Again, from my perspective, you know, I take a portfolio approach to it. We want to make sure we're uh, capturing all the spend that's uh, that's appropriate and having it placed on the right uh, on the on the right vehicle, but you know, I'd say schedule spend is steady. You know, from a cost recovery perspective, the program's healthy. All right, so that leads us down the path of something you said just written in the last month and a half or so around creating potentially one schedule or potentially even just consolidating schedules. One thought process behind that is because certain schedules are not, if you will, breaking even. Does it time to take a step back and say, is, is there a major change that's needed or a, a rethinking of how we present products and services because things change so much over the last 25, 30 years? We are definitely taking a look at the schedules program. A potential outcome is potentially one schedule or a consolidated set, set of schedules. No decisions have been made there. We've got an internal team that's looking at that made up of a cross-section of folks from the Federal Acquisition Service you know, they'll eventually come to a set of options, they'll briefed up to me, and we'll, you know, we'll eventually take them to, uh, to Emily. Their impetus really behind schedules reform is to make sure that the program continues to be healthy and meets the needs of our customers and our industry partners. So if you're a, you know, if you're a customer and you're looking to buy uh, through the schedules, from our perspective, it's sometimes a little bit challenging to think about, well, what schedule should I be, should I be buying that off of, right? So take something like contact centers. You know, is that an IT purchase off of 70? Or is that a professional services purchase off a double O Corp? Mm, I don't know, right? I could make an argument for either. I, from a customer perspective, I don't really want to have that confusion in their mind, right? They should be focused on, hey, look, I want the right set of vendors who can meet my, meet my needs. And from an industry perspective, you know, we've heard from industry partners who have to maintain multiple schedules. There's an administrative burden there. They oftentimes deal with different contracting officers, maybe, in, you know, in different regions, different acquisition centers. So there's a sort of consistency issue there, too, that I think with some, uh, some consolidation and reform, that, that's what we're trying to address from an industry side. Is there also a concern about maybe some vendors who are not using schedules? They got on. There's a cost for GSA to administrator, keep them, if you will, alive and well. Is there any kind of thought around, okay, maybe we need to, and, and this was a term used years ago, so I'll, I'll 
credit to those people back then is cut the deadwood off the schedule. Is there any thoughts to that yet? It's something that we are looking at more closely, right? I mean, when you see industry partners on schedule who haven't had any sales, say, over the course of two years, right, you have to ask yourself, hey, maybe there's not either there's not a market for that in, in the government space or maybe those, maybe those industry partners just aren't either, you know, pricing or offering their, um, you know, their products or services in the, in the right way. You know, from my perspective, having been on both sides of this, right, having been a small company who used a, used a consultant to help us uh, get on schedule, I think it's, uh, you know, it's incumbent upon everybody just to make sure that you do the right kind of market research first before you, you, know, before you take the time and effort uh, to, get a, to, to get a schedule, right? I mean, the point of getting a schedule is not to get a schedule, right? The point of getting a schedule is then to generate orders off of that schedule. Any timeline for this internal task group to get you some recommendations? Yeah, well, we, we should have some recommendations probably surfaced up, I would bet, before the end of the calendar year uh, in, in 18, right? And then, you know, I think it's potential, there are potentially some big changes there. So, you know, we want to make sure we properly socialize them with industry and with our, you know, with our agency customers. Um, so it's probably in terms of implementation, it's probably an FY20 kind of activity. As you said, well, there are certain people who say, well, what's the transparency? They have to do their market research to get on the, the schedule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, like my soapbox, okay? <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, I'm getting on the soapbox right now. The transparency of the schedules is lacking, right? So I can't, as, a, as, as if I wanted Jason Miller Incorporated and get on the schedules, I can't know what's there to yeah. know if I can even qualify. So I could pay you, Alan Thomas Incorporated, a billion dollars to help me get on, and I may not get on. I may, I may get on but never win anything. Thankfully, Administrator Murphy, you, and, and you helped maybe design a new pilot called GSA First. Mm -hmm. Give me an update on that. That's my favorite topic. This is a priority item for the administrator. I think you said you're on your soapbox. You know, sometimes folks on soapboxes raise good points, and I think here you, I think you raised a good point. So, you know, she's talked about improving transparency, increasing competition, and reducing duplication. And the the, the eBuy Open pilot um, that we're talking about running in FY19 really is focused on increasing transparency. So that's where we're going to take for purchases made through GSA and a couple of pilot, uh, couple pilot offices. And so the, the two offices that are going to participate in the pilot are uh, Region 7 in the Federal Acquisition Service, which is out of, uh, out of Fort Worth, and uh, our Office of Administrative Services, or OAS, which handles all the internal procurements for GSA. So those, those two offices are going to participate, and that gives us a really nice broad cross-section of all kinds of different procurements. Uh, so we think that will provide some good pilot data. So that will start in FY19, and the, uh, the thought there is uh, once an award has been made, you take the full statement of work and you put the statement of work on FedBizOps and allow anybody to access that statement of work. does a couple things. As you mentioned, if you're an uh, industry partner who wants to get on schedule, you'd like to know kind of, hey, are, are the things I offer being purchased, right? And so uh, it's, it can be hard to know that if you don't have access to eBuy. So this gives you some access to what kind of things are being purchased. And then the second thing we think it'll do is, particularly for small businesses, it gives them an opportunity to uh, go out on the FedBizOps, pull those statements of work down, and uh, look for subcontracting opportunities, right? So figure out, you know, who an FPDS, right? Figure out who the winning vendor is, and then, uh, and then potentially go go talk to the primes about, uh, you know, offering your your products or your services on a on a subcontract basis, which we think for smalls will be will be a boon. We have to take a break. My guest is Alan Thomas, the Federal Acquisition Service Commissioner at the General Services Administration. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. This is a special edition of Ask the CIO. My guest is Alan Thomas, the Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. E-commerce portal, 
big focus on from industry. Uh, there's a lot of concern of people calling it, and maybe I'm part of that problem here, the Amazon Amendment from the NDAA. But maybe just give us the latest update on the e-commerce program, and then also the fact that the micro-purchase threshold did not get increased as GSA had requested in the NDAA. Does that impact you guys much at all from an e-commerce perspective? We asked for several things in the NDAA. We got, I think probably the most important thing we got was the ability to uh, set the ordering procedures consistent with the SECA, or the Competition and Contracting Act. As you mentioned, we did not get the raise in the, in the micro-purchase threshold, which is disappointing, but we're continuing to work with the Congress and dialogue with the Congress to see if there's you know, some potential there in the, in the future. I think as we've been out talking to customer agencies, there's real interest in this even without the micro-purchase threshold raise, right? I mean, don't forget in DOD, they just got a raise to $10,000, right? And that hasn't been implemented in many places. So there's interest there. You know, their focus in terms of a proof of concept or a pilot in 19, which is still squarely, uh, we believe, within our reach, the agencies are interested in getting something stood up quickly and making sure we keep it uh, simple, right? I mean, the whole spirit or intent of the legislation is to take advantage of that commercial buying experience, which, which we all ex experience in our personal lives, and bring that, you know, that sort of experience into the government, right? So from, from our perspective, we don't want to layer on a whole, you know, a whole bunch of government processes and you know, extra, extra things on top of that, right? I mean, the beauty of that commercial buying experience is it's simple. It's something most of us know, know how to do. And, and you know, for small purchases, we feel like that's, that's the kind of experience we want folks in program offices in the government to have. But I think that's the key piece of, of what you hit, why, why there's so much concern about it, is because will those layers of government be taken off? The, as you know, small business requirement or competition and contracting acts or certain things that are in there by American Act. So I think because there's a lack of clarity about how all that's going to work together, I think that's why there's a little bit of angst. I mean, are, are you trying to answer those questions and relieve some of that uh, concern? We've done a pretty good job to date and we will continue to listen, right, to all, all different kinds of viewpoints and parties with respect to you know some of those rules don't forget under the micro purchase threshold those things those things don't apply today right so uh, i think we're on uh, we're on pretty solid ground there in terms of uh, running a pilot or proof of concept you know the whole point of doing a proof of concept is to gather feedback and data to help inform what you might do on a on a you know much broader scale right so yeah so i think that you know that's the plan i right? would like to get something out there in 19 get that data collected run that proof of concept and then have that inform how we're going to roll this out on a much broader scale the General Services Administration VA are potentially working together. VA runs some um, of their own quote-unquote schedules around, I guess, medical products and potentially services. And I've heard that potentially there's an effort maybe that GSA and VA would work more closely together. Can you offer a little more insights into what you guys maybe are considering? We are actually working pretty closely with the VA and their team in the acquisition and logistics area. We have talked to them a little bit about schedules, and potentially we're in the very early stages of exploring you know, how the schedules program at VA might leverage some of the technology that we use to manage our schedules program here at GSA. Uh, so as I said, that's early. I think even more exciting than that is, uh, you know, we've had a, a number of discussions and are pretty far down the path with VA in talking about how they might use our global supply program, our requisition channel. Um, so this, you know, this would help them gain a fair bit of control and visibility into, into micro-purchase spend within the, within the agency and provide them really, you know, really good pricing, really good good terms and conditions. Um, so that, you know, as I said, we're, we're much further down the path in discussions with them. You know, kind of joint teams have been stood up and project plans have been put in place. And, uh, you know, we think in fiscal year 19, we think you're going to see some significant spend flow through that requisition channel from the VA. One of the things that surprised, I think, a lot of us is the HCATS contract and the decision by GSA to cut the fee. GSA has been, generally speaking, unless if you're going to 
guarantee, for instance, like under Oasis, $500 million from the Army or the Navy. On Oasis, you usually don't, you guys aren't apt to cutting fees. Mm -hmm. Schedules, you don't think you guys have cut the fee for the schedules in, in 15 or 20 years. In 15 years, 2003 reduced the price 25% from 1% to 0.75. Yeah. So I think when we saw the HCATS decision, that was a little surprising. Talk maybe a little bit about that decision and, and what you hope that will help kind of spark. That was a decision right when the uh, you know the government wide reform plan was announced and we you know we started to uh, talk with OPM about merging merging some different functions i think that was an area where uh, we saw some operational efficiencies um, and so we said hey we think it makes sense to uh, signal to the market that you know, you're going to see some real results from those operational efficiencies which in this case is a you know is a reduction in the contract access fee um, the great thing about it is uh, you're still, from a uh, customer standpoint, still going to get you know, the expertise that GSA brings and the expertise that OPM brings, and sort of that value proposition that remains central to HCATS, but you know, but at a little a little less cost. Is fee cutting? What does that mean for you guys beyond less quote unquote revenue? Is that just a is it a sign that HCATS is struggling? Is it a sign that you think that HCATS could do more and by maybe cutting your fee would, would maybe be a bigger incentive? You know, look, everybody responds to price, right? So customers always respond to price. From our perspective, when it comes to pricing, and we actually have a group that's looking at pricing across all of our GWACs and, and the schedules, we want clarity and we want consistency for, uh, for customers. And we don't want customers making choices about uh, vehicles based on the contract access fee, right? We want them thinking about what's, what's the statement of work say, what's, you know, what's the appropriate scope on the contract, and then making the decision based on that. So I think in some sense harmonizing fees or bringing them a little bit more in line with each other and making them a little more clear and consistent is, is a good move. And as I said, we have a group that really just started to take a look at that. The other big contract that is out there, obviously, the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract, EIS. I know that's being run by some very good people in FAS. So let's step back and take the 50,000-foot view. What is your day-to-day -day involvement with EIS or month-to-month -month involvement? EIS is definitely something I pay attention to. I mean, FAS is a big organization. We have 3,300 folks, right? And there are some capable people in the ITC portfolio who are running that program. But it is, you know, it's a it's a big enough item that it's that I do pay attention to it. I mean, I look... I look at a couple things there, right, from the customer agency side. I look at, you know, how are they doing in terms of putting solicitations together, right, fair, fair opportunities, right? And, uh, you know, we've set aside a lot of dollars uh, and some resources to help agencies with transition assistance. That was a big lesson learned from the network's transition. And I think when you look at it, you know, we've, we've made some pretty good progress there. About half of the large and medium-sized agencies have put solicitations together, a few of them actually have solicitations out, right? Justice, uh, Social Security. So that from the agency side, right, we're kind of focused on helping them get their, you know, get their inventories in order and get the solicitations together. From the vendor side, uh, we're helping them get their business support systems certified, right? And I think uh, we've got nine, nine vendors on the contract. Five of them are through the BSS process. I think another three will be done by mid-September and then one more by mid-October. Uh, and then you know, then they've got to go through the ATO process, right? But but we you know we think I'll, it's reasonable to think that that'll be done uh, at some point in the first half of next year for most, if not all, the vendors on the on the vehicle. Let me just jump in because 
what, what you're talking about is, in many ways, is what happens at the day-to-day -day level. The, the people like, you know, Mary Davy before she was put on detail, or someone like Kate Ely is looking at. From your perspective, at, at you know the higher level, you don't worry about business support systems per se. Like, who or do you? I mean, is that part of? Are you getting updates weekly, daily on BSS or ATOs? So not weekly or daily, right? But in terms of metrics, right? So in Kate Ely's performance plan, there's a metric around you know number of vendors through BSS and number of agencies who have you know who are using transition assistance and who have got solicitations together, right? So for me. To manage a big enterprise like this, you can't look at, you know, I don't need hundreds of numbers, right? I need a few a few metrics, right? And from my perspective, vendors have to be ready to respond to solicitations and agencies actually have to have those solicitations ready to put on the street. So those are a couple those are a couple key metrics that I that I do look at. We have to take a break. My guest is Alan Thomas, the Federal Acquisition Service Commissioner at the General Services Administration. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. This is a special edition of Ask the CIO. My guest is Alan Thomas, the Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. The TMF, the Technology Modernization Fund, maybe step back and, and maybe this is stepping out of your FAS Commissioner role for a second, but talk a little bit about what you've seen through that and, and what has stood out to you. And, and I know there's another set of awards hopefully being made at the end of September or before the end of September. So there's a still, you're probably quite busy with the, the boards. So maybe talk a little bit about what you've seen over the last you know, six or eight months. Sure. So, uh, you know, having the opportunity to serve on the board uh, has been a pleasure. You know, I mentioned getting to meet some, uh, some CIOs and spend some quality time with them has been great. Uh, getting to work with Suzette has been, uh, has been great. I think um, you know, the, board, the board's been, been working hard, right? I think we've seen north of 30-some-odd uh, proposals uh, come, in, come in the door. Definitely hard at work on thinking about a second, second set of awards the thing that's probably surprised me most about the proposals is just, uh, uh, you know, there's a technology nexus to every proposal that comes in. But in terms of the different kinds of businesses and citizen uh, citizen impact that the proposals have, it really it really uh, you know runs the gamut, right? It gives you a real sense for the breadth of the federal government's mission, um, and all all you know all the different spaces and ways that the that the government touches uh, touches people's lives. So for me, that's been uh, it's been great to be a participant in that. I, am, uh, I bring obviously an acquisition lens, right? So I'm always focused on if somebody's, you know, if somebody's uh, going to spend some money to work with an industry partner. I'm looking at, you know, what vehicle are you using? Are you, are you, you know, is the project shovel ready, right? Uh, and I tend to be a little bit of a stickler on payback uh, as well, uh, because it is a revolving fund that I, you know, I happen to, to operate a revolving fund within GSA. So uh, the fund doesn't revolve if the money doesn't get paid back, right? Is that probably the hardest thing that agencies have gotten have had to get their head around? Is that payback model? I, th I think it was in the in the first round, as you as you mentioned. We I think we've redoubled our efforts in terms of I mean, there's a there's a program management office here at GSA that helps uh, run the operations of the TMF and interface with agencies. I think you know we've we've really redoubled our efforts there in terms of making sure we get the right kind of guidance uh, out to agencies in terms of what that what that payback model looks like. Yeah, I think some of the early agencies thought, well, we, we'll, we'll get appropriations to pay back the TMF, right, which is absolutely positively not how it works, right? I mean, the payback should come from savings generated from the effort, right? Maybe you're reducing operations and maintenance costs, so you're off of a legacy technology onto something new. It's cheaper to maintain. 
maybe there are productivity benefits that you're getting, right? So maybe you need fewer people in the organization to perform that function. Those are the sort of uh, those are the sort of benefits that turn into payback that we're that we're looking for. All right, Alan. I know we're almost out of time. Before I let you go, let me just get one more in there. Maybe give you a minute or two. The message to industry, the message to agency customers. And I'm asked two separate questions. Yeah. What, what, what do you want them to make sure they know about GSA FAS besides we're here to help? Sure. So actually, I would say largely the same thing to them, right? So we we are. Uh, I think we're in a period where there's kind of a window for uh, for reform and change. You know, we've got an administrator who knows a lot about acquisition, right? Very knowledgeable. Uh, she's got a clear set of top-level priorities around competition, transparency, and reducing duplication. Um, and in the Federal Acquisition Service, right, it's our job to sort of put the, um, you know, make the changes in policy, process, and technology to, uh, you know, to, to uh, make improvements in each of those areas. So, you know, I would say uh, those three lines of effort I mentioned, policy, process, and technology, those are, you know, we have a number of initiatives in each of those areas. So in policy, for example, take OLMs or take the, you know, the ability to do uh, uh, unpriced uh, IDIQs, right? That's a, you know, it's in the NDA that we got, right? It's a policy item, right? In process, you could talk about schedules reform. We could talk about commercial solutions opening, right? We could talk about the eBuy open pilot or the in-depth feedback through open reporting methods pilot, right? Those are all kind of process initiatives. And in the technology space, you know, I think you can talk about what we're doing in TMF, uh, what we're doing with respect to the centers of excellence and some of the internal changes we're making. All those things are designed to uh, improve the buying experience for customers and make it easier for industry partners to provide solutions that meet the needs of those customers. Right? So that, you know, that, that I'd give the same message to, uh, to bo- both parties. All right. There's so much more to talk to. We didn't even get a chance to talk about the technology transformation service much and COEs. We didn't get a chance to talk about some other favorite topics. But this gives me a reason to have you back on again. Uh, let me thank my guest. Alan Thomas is the Federal Acquisition Service and the General Services Administration Commissioner. Alan, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. Pleasure talking with you. We have to take a break. In this next segment of the show, we switch gears and talk about cybersecurity and how GSA's 18F organization is fixing the authority to operate or ATO process. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest for this part of the show is Aiden Feldman, an innovation specialist at the General Services Administration's 18F organization. Aiden, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for having me. So the reason why we're talking today is you guys have uh, issued a, put out a blog back in July, and this is a, it's a fascinating blog post. And in fact, uh, 18F seems to be very busy with blog posts. Uh, there's a couple that are, are just really interesting. But for our conversation today, we're going to talk about cybersecurity and the dreaded uh, authority to operate the ATO process that so many agencies, so many CIOs have to go through. Uh, 18F did something that was, uh, to go with your title, innovative. You guys took an ATO process from 6 to 12 months down to 30 days. And first, let's start at the beginning of the conversation and talk a little bit about why you guys had to relook at this ATO process beyond the fact is it's broken and everyone can admit that it's broken. But give me, give me a little bit of background about what you guys did. The ATO process is essentially vetting systems that are launching to ensure that they're following security best practices and have operational maturity. 18F builds and buys software all the time, and we had a growing backlog of systems that needed these ATOs. ATOs are normally completed by having slow back and forth between the project teams and the assessors, and doing it this traditional way, we simply never would have caught up. So this ATO sprinting team, as we called it, was an attempt to streamline this process, reduce the turnaround times, and get everything done more collaboratively with hopefully better outcomes. 
And when you say the backlog, you're talking about four, five, six systems? How many systems? Yeah, we had 30 systems that either had, you know, a uh, launch date coming up or needed a renewal of an ATO or were systems that we, you know, hadn't realized or considered were, you know, part of our inventory that, you know, needed this thing to be done to ensure that they were secure. And, you know, that was a daunting, that was a daunting number to a team of our size. Without a doubt, 30, and the issue here, and just to be clear to our audience, I know a lot of people understand the technology size, if you don't have an ATO, technically you're supposed to take that offline, or technically you're supposed to get some sort of approval to say, hey, even though it's not fully approved, you have an interim ATO, even though I know, generally speaking, that is not supposed to exist. So you saw this daunting task, and how did you go forward? What were, what were some of the first steps you took to say, hey, how do we do this differently? So the challenge that we were seeing is that turnaround time, the sort of slow asynchronous back and forth of a project team would try and complete the documentation, and that would take a long time because they've never done it before. Then, you know, once they finally complete it, they send it along, and then, you know, there's a bunch of follow-up questions from the people doing the assessment. And that would all happen over email and uh you know, just the back and forth would take a long time and things would get lost in translation, et cetera. So the real key to this ATO sprinting team was getting everyone in the same room. So we all work remotely. And so in this case, it was a virtual room. But the premise is the same, that if we have more conversational back and forth of, well, what does this mean? Like, Okay, this part isn't clear to me. Like, can you can you explain it further? That could happen in more real time, and it increased the understanding on both sides, and greatly, greatly reduced the kind of overall time to complete. And we'll get into the final kind of results of this effort. But one of the things that I think is key here, as you read through the blog, and we'll put a post, uh, we'll do a link to your blog on federalnewsradio.com, is this idea of you had dedicated people. So it's not, hey, you need to do your regular job and you need to do the ATO, but you said your job is to do the ATO. Do I have that correct? Absolutely. So project teams often try and complete the ATO while doing other project work. And that splitting of time and focus doesn't work well. Same thing on the assessor side. They're often trying to assess a number of systems at one time that there's a cost to that context switching. So having someone, you know, a system owner from the project team be dedicated to the ATO process while it was going. And similarly, having an assessor that is just focusing on that one thing rather than hopping back and forth you know, that increases the focus, that increases the amount of collaboration, et cetera. And we would also have someone act as a translator. So uh, we call these infrastructure leads. And they would help the different sides understand each other, both from the assessors who may not be familiar with the technology that's being used and the project teams who are new to compliance. Then the other piece of this is the email side. You said, hey, before... A lot of the information's traded by email. Email tends to get lost. And then using other you know, kind of real-time messaging software may not also work. So you guys actually used a specific type of, if you will, dashboard. Talk a little bit about that dashboard. I think it's a Kanban, it's called? Because we had this long backlog, we had to figure out how to prioritize work and track where projects were in the process. So we set up a Kanban board. This is just a way of visually representing the system's 
at their different stages and you know sort of a priority ranking so we're able to see okay these teams are still working on their documentation or these teams are in their penetration test or these teams are waiting for signature etc and so we're able to visualize and, and track projects just like if you're working on a project, you would track tasks within it. And the key here is that if a task fell behind or if somebody wasn't necessarily paying attention to a task, they got caught up in another part of their job, it, that's easy for for the, the system owner or the assessor or somebody to kind of send an easy reminder versus what was maybe traditionally happens is, hey, let's just send another email and hope they see it. Is that the big difference here? Absolutely. But having everyone in the same room, that problem kind of goes away, right? When it's happening asynchronously, people can take a long time to respond or you know, go on vacation or these kinds of things because we're all in the same room we could all see the work happening and ask questions as they came up and you know say hey what's the status of this etc so yeah that problem really went away by having the more synchronous communication the other piece of, of this effort i think was you had the tracking you have the roles the different roles there but but would you say that the another key piece of this is the the standardization. The fact is that everyone's maybe not starting at, at page one, but you are at least working from the same playbook. Absolutely. So there's a couple aspects to that. One is teams coming in, as, as I mentioned, may not have compliance experience. So sending them to the Federal Information Security Management Act or other, you know, sort of large daunting paperwork about the ATO process is not going to be uh, the easiest way for them to get into it. So we standardized and documented our process, including a checklist of what's expected going in. Similarly, for those systems, if every system coming in to the assessment is different, is running on different infrastructure, et cetera, then for the assessors, there's no consistency and they don't know what to expect. And you know, it's the assessor's job to understand what's going on in the system, and so it takes longer if they have to relearn a new technology every time. So we found that the more that we were able to inherit between systems and share the best practices of how you configure it, and then the sort of shared language around how you explain how that system's working, having all of that more consistent helped the process on all sides. So let's talk about results now. You talked about all the pieces and parts that came together. You guys went from, as you said, six to 12 months to how long? We got our average down to under 30 days. So this was a huge, a huge achievement. We were really proud of ourselves. And really, it couldn't have been possible without the willing stakeholders on the GSAIT side who are doing the assessment. You know, this was better for them as well because they have fewer things on their plate as a result. So 30 days is impressive. Under 30 days is, is even more impressive. Maybe talk a little bit about how you got better as the process went along. Are all 30 systems fully ATO'd? Are you going to reach that goal in the next you know month or two? Where are you at with, with all those 30 systems and how the process has improved with each system? We were able to take that backlog down from 30 systems to zero in a year and a half. So that was a big deal for us. We were really excited about that. Things that improved over time, a lot of it was documenting the process and understanding where the sort of gaps were in order for teams to be more successful within the process, you know, having, having a better to-do list of how to set up moder monitoring, how to, you know, complete various operational tasks, how to 
create system diagrams in a way that's understandable and going to be consistent for the assessors seeing it. So really finding those ways that we could be consistent and finding those steps that we could state more explicitly helps increase the kind of throughput as we went. Talk a little bit about the difference from you know 18 months ago when you first started to today. 30 days is impressive, but was the first one that you did and took you three, four, five months, and then the second one took you you know, three or four months. And then did you, wh- when did you start seeing that decrease, I guess, is the, the better question. Honestly, as soon as we started working synchronously on them, uh, I mean, I, I think that probably dropped it down to two months for our first system, down from six or more. So simply having people in that same room and able to ask questions more, more fluidly and able to, you know, work through problems together as opposed to, you know, just let me know when it's done. That had an immediate improvement, and the rest was just refinements from there. One of the things over the, the past, I don't know, 15 or 20 years of FISMA and this ATO process is uh, the, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the NGA, has talked about trying to get an ATO in a day. And this is why this your blog post and your, your success has stood out to me, because this is getting much closer to that ATO in a day. So maybe talk a little bit about how you guys are sharing your success with other agencies. How are you guys really socializing your processes? You know, I hope through talking with you and, you know, agencies that reach out. Uh, I love talking about this stuff. Hopefully, you know, sharing some of these learnings and, you know, helping people understand that it's, not magic, right? Just get people in the same room, get willing participants, and document your learnings, document your process, and make sure that the under- that the expectations are the same on all sides. That really can, can go a long way. Uh, but also through our engagements with agencies, ATNF you know, does work with agencies across the federal government. And as we're you know building software for them or helping them buy software, et cetera, ATOs are going to come up, and so we can work learnings from doing ATOs within GSA into interacting with the various agencies' security teams and hopefully leave them better off compliance-wise as opposed to just delivering software. So one thing that comes up often is, well, they're 18F. They can do things easier than me. They don't understand where I come from. Is your process anything special to what 18F does, or is it just you guys just happen to take a step back and say, how could we improve the process so anyone can really improve their process? You You get the question I'm asking? Absolutely. I don't think there's anything special about this. Um, You know, we are set up to try new things, right? This is this is sort of the model of 18F. But we're very lucky to have willing partners on the GSAIT side who were willing to do this experiment with us. So I honestly think that's the harder harder thing of understanding the needs of the security teams and those doing the assessments and finding people you know who are willing to work work both ways uh, because it really is a better result for everyone. So what's the end goal here? You want to get down to two days a week? You know, if we have this conversation again in, in, in a month or six months from now, do you, do you expect that ATO process to get even shorter? Yeah, I don't think it's going to get down to an hour or anything like that. The ATO process is there to make sure you're doing your due diligence security-wise, and that can't go away completely, and I, I don't think should go away completely. What I do hope to see is if not time, then reduced effort four teams uh, and the assessors to complete the ATO. And that comes with 
better tooling, better documentation, and you know, kind of better tracking of of these projects as they go through, so that we can you know get ahead of problems uh, before they come up. And, and finally, Aiden, one thing about this is this kind of brings me around to there's a lot of talk about robotics process automation, AI, machine learning. And then on the cyber side, the automation, orchestration, and then, of course, uh, the continuous monitoring. Where does that all fit in into this process? Do you foresee applying some of those emerging technologies? The ATO process is the sort of gate at the front of software being launched. There's additional compliance requirements that are required over the lifetime of the system, and that's where continuous monitoring comes in. And for that, a lot of the processes are done manually right now, like check your logs for, you know, anomalous events, that kind of thing. That's really tedious, and that's going to be a place where a, a robot, an AI, or these kinds of things are going to be better at, you know, understanding large amounts of data over time and taking that burden off of team. Very good. Eden, as I said, this is a, a huge success story, not just for 18F, but for the government in general. So uh, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for your time. My guest has been Aiden Feldman, an innovation specialist at the General Services Administration's 18F organization. Uh, Aiden, thank you uh, so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. That's all the time we have for today. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes. 